Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. I want to welcome those that are on the internet and those that are listening by phone and even those that may be hearing this as a recorded message later on. Uh, we are continuing our Bible study on reasons to believe. And we started last time uh, looking into part six, which is entitled Fulfilled Prophecy. And if you've missed any of the past studies, the notes and the recordings are all available at our website. That's at new-life-ministries.org. And you can just follow the prompts there for messages, for the audio, and for the notes. But all of those materials should be available to you. Uh, I'm really excited about this section and the whole topic of fulfilled prophecy is a vast one and we're going to be spending, uh, I don't even want to estimate, but probably a good four to five weeks on this section and I'm really not in a hurry. I want to take this slowly and really examine um, the body of evidence, huge amount of information on this particular topic, and we're only skimming the surface. Um, this is really uh, a year's course if you really wanted to study uh, all of the depths of prophecy in the Bible. But I want to begin again tonight by reading a couple of passages that we started with last week just to sort of set the tone again because I love these passages. It, I think it really communicates what I'm hoping we can capture in this Bible study, and that is the, the powerful proof that prophecy gives us of who God is, His power, His wisdom, His sovereignty, and also the absolute infallibility of Scripture, and with 100% confidence, we can trust every word of God from Genesis to Revelation. It's all true. It's all divinely inspired. And that's one of the uh, things that a study of prophecy should do for each one of us, is really bolster our faith in God, and in His Word. And I just want you to listen again to these few passages in the prophet Isaiah. You'll remember last time we talked about how he ministered at a time where Israel was slipping into a lot of idolatry. And surely that mirrors our culture today, where many people have taken their eyes off of a living God, and they're trusting in all sorts of man-made gods and, and even false gods. And these scriptures, I think, speak very powerfully to any culture like that, where they're beginning to worship other gods or even uh, the gods of atheism, that we are our own god. So Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21, gives us a little bit of an idea of how God uses this whole 
matter of prophecy and predicting the future and fulfilling those predictions as proof that he is the one and only true God. Isaiah 41, from 21 to 23. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Notice in this challenge that God gives, one of the qualities that God himself reserves is this ability to tell the future. And that's why he challenged all of the idols, all of the false gods, please come forward and tell us what the future holds. Declare to us the things to come. And of course, no one can do that with perfect accuracy. We may get a lucky guess once in a while, but God says, I and only I can predict the future and bring it to pass. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are gods. And I believe we can challenge our culture today and any of the gods that people worship. Can your God predict the future for us? Can the God of money or the God of pleasure or the God of self, can that predict the future with 100% accuracy? I think we would all agree the answers to all those questions are no. Moving a little further in Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. This is what the Lord says. By the way, I love it when God speaks. You can feel power when you read these verses because it is God speaking his very word to us. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and, note these words, what is yet to come. So here again, God challenges any would-be God, little g, please let him come forward and proclaim the past and the future. Let him tell us what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. 
I am God, and there is none like me. And this is a very important verse, verse 10. I make known the end from the beginning. Only God has made known to us the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've talked about that in previous studies, that no other religion gives an account of the origin of the universe. Only God does that in his special revelation, the word of God. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And then finally at the end of verse 11, God says, what I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. And we could cite other passages, a few others that we read last week, but I think that gives us a feeling for the importance of this subject of being able to foretell the future. God himself states repeatedly that this is an important proof of who he is, his ability to declare to us the end from the beginning, to foretell the future, and then to bring it to pass with 100% accuracy. Long before things happen, God tells us about them so that when they come to pass, we can fall down before him and worship him and acknowledge he is the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. He is the only true God. Now, we started last week uh, looking at one broad subject in this whole study of prophecy, and that has to do with the nations. Nations don't just happen. Nations aren't just accidents. We saw in Jeremiah 18 that God is the one who causes a nation to rise, and God is the one who causes a nation to fall. And very often in Scripture, long before a nation was born, God predicted it, and long before a nation falls, God predicts it. And so the study of prophecy as it relates to the nations uh, is a vast subject, and we're only going to touch the surface here tonight. But we started last week with the most important nation of all, that's the nation of Israel. And long before there was even a nation, we saw in Genesis 12 that God predicted to the prophet Abraham, you may not be used to that, but he is a prophet. The Bible calls Abraham a prophet. God told Abraham that he was going to make of him a great nation. And those that bless that nation would be blessed, and those that curse that nation will be cursed. And we also saw very early in the history, as early as Genesis 15, God was predicting 
again, through Abraham, long before there was even a nation, that this nation would go into slavery in a foreign land, and God even predicted the length of time that they would be in slavery, 400 years. And we found that in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, let me just quote the verse again, Exodus fifteen thirteen. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Now, you and I could make a guess on that, but to make such bold predictions, number one, the nation wasn't in a foreign land. Number two, it wasn't even a nation yet. Number three, how can we predict the length of time they're going to be slaves in that foreign country? But fast-forwarding to the book of Exodus, and by the way, this prophecy was given to Abraham at least 200 years before it began to come to pass. So this is often the case with prophecies in the Bible. Hundreds of years ahead of time, God predicts what is going to happen. And so in Exodus 12, we find that now not only has the first part of this prophecy been fulfilled, God made of Abraham a great nation. We learn that in Exodus chapter 1. And I can't go into all of the details, but I think most of us understand through Joseph and through Joseph being sold as a slave into Egypt, that paved the way for the descendants of Abraham to go down into a foreign country, namely Egypt, and eventually to become slaves there. And lo and behold, after the 400-year period that was predicted expires, we read in Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41, and I'm repeating this all from last week, now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. And this was the last part of the prophecy that God had given to Abraham that needed to be fulfilled. First, they would become a nation. Second, they would go into a foreign country, namely Egypt. Third, they would be enslaved there for 400 years. That part has been fulfilled now. But finally, God had also predicted, once that 400 years is complete, I will bring them back to the land of Canaan. And so the book of Exodus, of course, is exactly about that. Their exodus out of Egypt and their travel back to the land of Canaan, all in fulfillment of God's word. Now, picking it up from where we finished last time, after the Israelites came back to the land of Canaan, as God had predicted, they became a very great, powerful, 
and wealthy nation. And finally, when we come to the time of King David and King Solomon, they were the wealthiest and the most glorious, most powerful force on the face of the earth. Amazing how God did that so quickly. And there were many, many prophecies that we don't even have time to look at in this study where God promised them peace, prosperity, victory, and all those things if they remained faithful to him. And let me just take this opportunity to make a little statement. Um, Very often we hear Christians and preachers and all kinds of different folk talk about God's unconditional love. God's love is unconditional in certain ways. But the last time I remember my English grammar, the word if is a conditional statement. And I would challenge anyone that thinks God's unconditional love means we can get away with murder, we can do anything under the sun, and it's not going to change our standing with God. I would challenge you to look at all of the places in the Bible where God uses the word if. And this isn't just an Old Testament concept. Many times in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God had repeatedly warned the Israelites, if they would remain faithful to him, then they would prosper, they would be blessed, they would be fruitful, they would be the greatest nation on the face of the earth. But he also promised, if they did not remain faithful to him, they would suffer great judgment and they would be dispersed from the promised land and they would suffer dire consequences if they forsook the Lord. Well, this is where we pick up the next chapter in the story. During the lifetime of the prophet Jeremiah, the nation of Israel went further and further away from the Lord. They were worshiping all kinds of false gods, idolatry, disobedience, and rebellion had taken them further and further away from the Lord. And one of the jobs of the prophet Jeremiah was to warn the people that if they did not repent, that Jerusalem was going to fall to a foreign leader, and they would all be exiled out of the promised land, and they would spend a number of years in captivity. More specifically, Jeremiah told them the exact length of time they would be in captivity if indeed they suffered that kind of judgment. And when we come to Jeremiah 29, 
uh, God has already now decreed and decided that Jerusalem is going to fall. It'll be burned to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Many Jews would be slaughtered and the rest would be exiled out of the country and taken as prisoners to a foreign land. And the prophet Jeremiah predicted all of this, and he even predicted the length of time that they would be away from their homeland and exiled into captivity. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So long before it has even taken place, here again, God is making these exact predictions. You're going to Babylon, your city Jerusalem will be destroyed, and you're going to spend 70 years, not 69, not 71, 70 years you will be in captivity. When that time is up, I will fulfill my gracious promise and bring you back to this place. So, we now have to check history to see if this is indeed what happened. A, was Jerusalem burned to the ground? B, did the Israelites go into captivity in Babylon? And C, was it for 70 years? D, did they come back to Israel at the end of 70 years? Not 80, not 90, but 70. Okay? This is a one of many very exact predictions that we find in the Word of God made years before it actually took place. Well, in Second Chronicles chapter 36, beginning with verse 20, we see the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Second Chronicles 36, beginning at verse 20. It reads, he, and in the context, it's clear, that's Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Now, just to give a real quick history lesson here, and we will see bits and pieces of this as we move along. But at the time Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, and when he invaded Jerusalem, Babylon was the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth. Interestingly, during the 70 years that followed, Babylon began to weaken, and finally, at the end of that 70 years, coincidentally, right, 70, that 
kingdom is overcome by another kingdom, the kingdom of Persia. So that's what this reference here is is talking about. Uh, Let me read that last part of verse 20 again. Um, He carried into exile the remnant who escaped from the sword. They became servants until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested, and please listen to these words, until the 70 years were completed, not by accident, not by coincidence, in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Wow. Not 69, not 71. After 70 years, Babylon's power suddenly dried up and they were overcome by the king of Persia. You read about that in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, uh, Belshazzar, is drinking and partying and defiling all of the golden vessels that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem, and suddenly a finger starts to write on the wall. You have been weighed in the balance, and you have been found wanting. And that very night, the armies of Persia were all around the palace, and that's when the kingdom fell. So let me read verse 21 again. The land, that's referring to the land of Israel, enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. God rules in the affairs of men. God rules over nations, kingdoms, political leaders, kings, dictators. I don't care who they are. God rules. And I love this next part. Verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, Spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. We're going to read more about this fellow in a minute, but he's a heathen. He's an unbeliever. But the Lord can move the heart of any king. Did you know that? The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. This is an amazing story. After 70 long years, maybe most of the people had lost hope. Maybe they figured they're going to spend 
the rest of their days in Babylon. But no, suddenly in the 70th year, there are all kinds of political changes. There's a new king named Cyrus who's now in power. And in the very first year of his reign, the Lord moves on his heart. Why? To fulfill the word of the Lord. Not by accident, but to fulfill the word of the Lord, because the 70 years are up now. He issues a proclamation, which now allows all of the Jews to leave the country and to go back to Israel. And you read about the restoration of the city and the temple in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra that ensued after Cyrus makes this proclamation. But it gets even more interesting. In the prophet Isaiah, 200 years before Cyrus was even born, Isaiah mentions him by name that he would be the one that God would use to bring the people back from captivity and to uh, decree that they go back and rebuild their temple. This is found in Isaiah 44, starting at verse 24. And again, this is 200 years before Cyrus was even born. This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. Verse 26, listen very carefully. Who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins, remember Nebuchadnezzar ruined everything when he invaded, they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. And here it comes. Who says of Cyrus, remember Cyrus isn't born yet. He's got to wait 200 years. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. That's exactly what we read in Second Chronicles. That was his proclamation. Let Jerusalem be rebuilt, and let the people go back and restore the city and the temple. Continue a little further into Isaiah 45. This whole story of Cyrus becomes quite amazing. Verse 1 of Isaiah 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, 
Now, God has called this man his shepherd. Now he's calling him his anointed. You might think he's a a powerful pastor or prophet or something, but the rest of the scripture will tell us otherwise. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. By the way, understand the the whole reason that Persia was able to overcome Babylon and Cyrus was able to come into power as king was one thing. It was God who decreed it. And that's very clear in these scriptures. God is the one who has now put down Babylon and he's raising up the kingdom of Persia and he's raising up this man Cyrus to be its leader. Let me read all this again because this is very important. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. They They were able to invade, surround, and completely defeat the Babylonians in one night. This was the power of God. Verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. See, this is all because of Israel. Because of Jacob, because of Israel, I summon you by name. And as I've pointed out, named him 200 years before he was born or even given a name. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. King James says, though you do not know me. This guy was a heathen, and yet God is calling him his shepherd, his anointed, and God and God alone is the one that brought Cyrus to power and brought Persia to a place of power. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, There is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Why is God doing this? He tells us why in verse 6. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. This should be the effect that all of these passages have 
on your heart and mine. When we learn about these amazing predictions that were made often hundreds of years before anyone could have even known what was going to happen in the political realm, etc., etc., when it all comes to pass exactly as God predicted, we should fall down and acknowledge there's only one true God. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. As with all fulfilled prophecy, this amazing prediction came to pass exactly as God said, so that all mankind would know that there is no other God besides the Lord. What an amazing history Israel has, but it's not over yet. Many years later, after they returned to their land, they rebuilt the temple during the time of Ezra. The city of Jerusalem was restored under the leadership of Nehemiah. And for many, many years after that, Jerusalem and the nation of Israel again began to prosper and began to strengthen. Until, fast forward, we now come to the time of Jesus. When Jesus was still on earth, he also made a prediction concerning Jerusalem. Jesus was indeed the great prophet, and he gives a prediction that at the time seemed rather unlikely, if not impossible, that it would ever come to pass. But it's found in Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 37. This is toward the end of Jesus' life. He's about to face crucifixion. And in Matthew 23, 37, he's entering the city of Jerusalem, and he says the following, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. This is now chapter 24 and 1. So they're looking at the temple in Jerusalem, and in verse 2, <clears throat> he says, Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now this was somewhere around 
30-something A.D., all right? At that time, it seemed very improbable that such a thing could happen. The temple was very glorious. It was very splendid. The nation of Israel was basically at peace, and there was no reason to believe that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And note these words, not one stone will be left on another. Complete desolation, complete annihilation of the city is predicted again. And in Matthew 23, remember, Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. So a bold prediction that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, it's going to be desolate, and not even one stone of the temple left on another. Well, it only took about 40 more years for this to come to pass exactly as predicted. And again, this is history. This isn't stuff we're making up. In A.D. 70, again, that's about 40 years after this prophecy was given by Jesus, Titus and the Roman armies invaded Jerusalem and demolished the entire city. The historian Josephus, Jewish historian, in his accounts of this, he literally writes that not one stone was left on another complete desolation of the temple and the city resulted from the Emperor Titus and the Roman invasion of A.D. 70. From that time on, the Jews were scattered from Jerusalem literally to the four corners of the earth and continued to be that way for almost 2,000 years. And you may have heard the term wandering Jews. Well, uh, they've had a number of wanderings, but their longest wandering is what began starting here in AD 70. Historians refer to it as the diaspora, the, the scattering, where the Jews literally went to every nation, every country, every island. They scattered everywhere in the world, and for nearly 2,000 years, they never came back to their land. And it's amazing enough, when you think about it, that a people who suffered this kind of an invasion, their city completely broken down, not one stone left upon another, scattered all over the earth. It's amazing to think that after 2,000 years, they would even be able to retain their identity as a people. Many other nations that have been destroyed like this, they basically just cease to exist. You don't find them anymore. No one knows whatever happened to the people. But... (coughs) 2,000 years pass, the Jewish people retain their identity 
and in fulfillment of a number of other prophecies, miraculously, after the Holocaust, Hitler's Holocaust, where six million Jews were exterminated, that seemed like this is curtains for the nation Israel. They're, they're going to be annihilated, obliterated from the face of the earth. No way that they could ever come back to their land or ever hope to become a nation again. But amazingly, in 1948, after nearly 2,000 years of being scattered all over the earth, the Jewish people, still a distinct people, returned to their land and they became a nation and have continued in their land and continued as a nation to this day. This was also prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Isaiah 11, 11 and 12. And I want you to note one phrase here that's very important. Verse 11, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. Notice that. A second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. If there's a second time, there was a first time. We already learned about the first time that God did this. After 70 years in Babylon, to the very day and to the very year, God fulfills his word and raises up Cyrus, releases them from their captivity, sends them back to the land of Israel. They rebuild their temple, rebuild their city, and once again, they become a people in their land. But now, many, many, many years later, Jesus predicts again their temple, their city is going to be left desolate and they're going to be scattered to the four corners of the earth. This time, not for 70 years, it was for a, a long period of time. God didn't set a time for it. But after nearly 2,000 years, they finally come back a second time. And here's the reason why. In fulfillment of the word of the Lord given by the prophet Isaiah. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, even before Christ. And here he says, In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. In other words, from wherever they were scattered. Verse 12, He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. That's what happened after World War II. God literally said, 
it's time. And he brought them back from all these different nations, from the four quarters of the earth. He brought them back to their land, and miraculously, they became a nation. And this is also prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah 66 and verse 8. Isaiah 66, verse 8. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion, Zion of course refers to Israel, yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Well, what is this miraculous birth? It's a nation once again being born. And this happened in 1948. Prophecy became history. And the nation of Israel has been in their land up until this day. And it's way beyond the scope of this Bible study to even begin to talk about prophecy concerning Israel that is yet to be fulfilled. There's a lot of stuff that yet has to happen in these last days. And if you look, for instance, at Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, we're, we won't go there, but Paul talks about a number of prophecies concerning the salvation of Israel and the exaltation of the kingdom of Israel in the last days. It hasn't happened yet. So there's still a lot of prophecy yet to be fulfilled concerning Israel. And for those enemies and those nations that would like to annihilate or destroy Israel, I would suggest that they get their Bibles out and do a study in prophecy. Because if all of these other prophecies that we've studied came to pass with such perfect accuracy, I don't think I would want to gamble on any of the other ones that are yet to be fulfilled. And, of course, even though these things are predicted, they will happen exactly as God has said they will. And there will come a day when all of the nations on the face of the earth, including the United States, if it is even a nation at that time, will turn against Israel. They will stand alone in the entire world community, but God will defend them, and God will fight for them. So, again, lots and lots of stuff predicted for the last days concerning Israel, but we, we just, we would literally spend a year trying to com complete this Bible study if we did that. I'm going to end here tonight because this is a good breaking point. And next time, we're going to take just a brief look. There are chapters and chapters and chapters on this in the Bible. But we're going to take a brief look at the Gentile nations. Uh, basically, Gentile just means nations. So when God talks about Israel and the Gentiles, 
the Gentiles are all of the non-Jewish peoples, all of the non-Israelite nations. And there's a lot in the Bible concerning the Gentile nations, uh, extensive and detailed prophecies were given by Isaiah, by Jeremiah, by Ezekiel. And we're just going to briefly look at those. Again, we, it would take months for us to finish this if we looked at each one of them. But suffice it to say, even before we go there, that every single word God spoke has come to pass. Nations that he predicted would fall have fallen, and they are no more, or they are greatly weakened now, as God predicted. And I don't know about you, but I get greatly encouraged when I read this history of Israel and how each step of the way God was in control, he was telling ahead of time what's going to happen next, he causes it to happen, and then we are to fall down and worship him as the one and only true and living God. God is a fulfiller of his own prophecies, and many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies are contained in the scripture, except for the ones that are yet to be fulfilled in the future, every one has come to pass with 100% accuracy, just as God spoke. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle can ever be altered or changed in your word. The scripture cannot be broken. God, you are faithful. And when you make a prediction with 100% certainty, we know that it will come to pass. You make known the end from the beginning. You declare to us your purposes long before they've taken place so that we may know for a fact that you are sovereign, you are Lord, you are the one and the only true God. Father, I pray for each one listening tonight that their faith would be increased, that there would be an assurance, a rock-solid certainty that everything you have ever spoken in your word is going to come to pass exactly the way you predicted it. And God, we praise you for so many prophecies that were made hundreds of years ahead of time, and each one of them has come to pass exactly as it was written. We praise you because you're a faithful God. You're a mighty God. You're a powerful, sovereign God. And we can trust you. We can trust our future into your hands. And Lord, we know that you will have your way in every situation. You will move heaven and earth. You can move the heart of a king, just like turning on a faucet of water, just as you raised up and moved the heart of King Cyrus. How awesome you are, O oh God, that you are in control of all of the nations, all of the 
politics going on in the world even today, you are in control. You have all power, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore, we pray tonight, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll give you all the praise and all of the glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.